everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's guest is Luke Hall, and he's here to talk about an old school favorite, December 11th, 1995, at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine. I love speaking and learning from all guests, all different kinds of guests on Attendance Bias, and Luke offered a new perspective, one which I haven't heard before. Luke is Canadian. And while that isn't wildly different from any other fan, of course, it does offer a unique perspective, one that we haven't had on the show. Fish is not huge in Canada, and they rarely play the country these days. And so there's nothing new about a person getting into fish when they weren't well known. But imagine if you were learning about fish and getting into them, and there was barely any interest on a national scale, let alone a local one. Throw in the fact that Luke first got into fish during the mid-90s when they were just becoming nationally known in America, and there's a perspective certainly worth hearing. Plus, as I mentioned, Luke picked a show that is considered a fish classic, December 11th, 95, at the Cumberland County Civic Center. That show features many fish classics at the end of one of their best tours in history, as well as dog log goofiness and a guest appearance by Warren Haynes, so both of us had a lot to say about the show. So let's join Luke to talk about Fall 95, the Canadian-American exchange rates, and when we should expect an officially released Dog Log album, as we discuss Fish's performance on December 11th, 1995, at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine. Luke, thank you for stopping by Attendance Bias. How are you? Great. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me. My pleasure as well. Today's show in my opinion, or at least in my personal fish upbringing is a legendary show. There's so much going on in it that I can't wait to speak to you about it. And that show is December 11th, 1995 at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine, the CCCC. But before we dig into that or any of that, you're from New Brunswick, a Canadian fan. And congratulations. I believe you are the first Canadian fan to appear on attendance bias. How does that feel? Well, I hope I'm not the last, but I'm glad to be (laughs) the first. It's a kind of a nice feeling for sure. And I'm excited to get to dig into that a little bit because most of the people who have appeared on my show are from new England or the Northeast. And I think most people have similar uh, stories or origin stories of how they first got into fish. But Fish doesn't play Canada very often, even in the mid-90s when they were playing everywhere. Canada maybe got two or three gigs a year at the most. So I have to hear it from your perspective. How did you get into Fish and what was the scene like around you, if there even was one? To be honest, the scene for us as Fish fans that came out of that Grateful Dead arc, I think being so close to you know, the Northeast of the United States, there were so many shows, whether it be the Grateful Dead, uh, Fish, the Almond Brothers, that kind of thing that did that leg of the tour. Anybody that was into that music from our neck of the woods would immediately hop at the opportunity. At the time, though, there was no internet. We're talking between 93 and 95 when I was birthing that joy of, of being a a place, not a placeholder, but somebody that shared the music with other people. So anybody that went to a Grateful Dead show would come back talking about these shows as if they were some kind of biblical experience. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have 
any kind of band in Canada at the time, at least in my opinion, that offered that same kind of experience. If you were to see the concerts around that time, you would see the Bare Naked Ladies, the Tragically Hip, the U2 would come and do a show in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton. But they really didn't come and do our neck of the woods, at least in that time of the 90s. We started to see fish kind of develop on fillers on dead tapes. You know, so you might have like a Nassau County Coliseum show and there'd be a filler from this weird band called Fish and it would be Fee or Lizards. And you really didn't even know where the show was from. It would just have the date. And eventually, as people started to drift away from the dead, not because the music was um, less interesting, but I think it Fish offered up something that was a little bit more something to own for their generation, perhaps, if that makes sense. It didn't feel like there was as much information, at least in, in New Brunswick or maybe even Canada, which I can't really speak to in 93, 94, 95. I could later on in life, but at the time, there really wasn't a lot of information. So you would hear stories about uh, macaroni boxes being thrown out <laughs> to the crowd. You know, you would hear... And at the time, the Simpsons were like something that we would reference through, you know, college classes even. So when we heard there was a band that had a, a referential treatment of the Simpsons as well, we thought, okay, well, that's not something we could see the dead admitting to. And maybe there was something about the honesty in Fish's music that spoke to, to us, if that makes sense. At the time when you would hear a dead tape, and I don't want to slander the dead because it it still makes me cry from time to time. But you would hear a broken arrow sung by Phil, or you would hear Queen Jane approximately. A lot of the song choices that the dead were playing at the time didn't appeal to me. And I couldn't say the same about Fish. I don't think that's unusual. And I don't think most people would consider that slander. I think there are times now even where there's a lot of songs that fish plays that a lot of old time fans would say, I don't really want to hear a lot of these songs. You know, there's a fan that I know who, when fish is about to play four shows at Madison square garden at the time of this recording, who I offered an extra to him. And he said, you know what? I'm not really that much into fish anymore because there's better chances they'll play something I don't want to hear than something I do want to hear. I couldn't imagine giving up a ticket. <laughs> I don't know if that, I don't know if that's a fan thing or if that's a Canadian thing where there's just never enough of it to go around. The Trey band played um, at uh, a festival here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, which isn't too far from here maybe a couple of years ago. And that was a dream come true for a lot of fans because we never even envisioned them even having some sort of thought that this would be a venue to play. And then I believe Mike Gordon's band played another festival, the Evolve Festival in Annie Ganesh, Nova Scotia. So they've seen this area, they're familiar enough with it, but it's not something that I think would ever come up on their thought process to, to come here to play. Well, I wanted um, to ask you about that as as a resident of New Brunswick for us geographically challenged Americans, what American cities would be closest uh, to where you grew up or where you live if you saw that fish planned a tour 
what are some of the typical cities that they play uh, in America? Or I know in Toronto, they play occasionally that you would look at it, circle it and say, well, that's that's within distance. That's within striking distance. Bangor. So Bangor 94 would have been a show that I was on the way to go. And it just turned out that I didn't have a ticket. And there was quite a few people from here that didn't have tickets that went to that show and quite a few that did. And then it turned out within the last hour before I was about to go, I lost my seat to somebody that had a ticket. When I say lost, I I remember it that I gave up the seat. I think karmically that helps, you know, somewhere in the future. But so Bangor would have been the first thing that we would see. And then if they did Portland or Providence, Great Woods, Sugarbush, those all seemed within that eight hour drive realm that seemed reasonable to us. After seeing Portland, 12 hours seemed reasonable. 16 hours seemed reasonable. However, one show wasn't enough. It was after that that you had to start seeing the three night runs in Worcester or the New Year's run in New York. It's it's one of those things where at the time, I think the exchange rate, the Canadian dollar was only worth 50 cents American. So in order to make that commitment to drive 16 hours or 12 hours or eight hours, you really had to find that three night stand later on. You, you, you would take that one night if that's all you could get. And that's normally what you would get when they would show um, a tour in Canada, maybe one night in Montreal, one night in Toronto, one night in Vancouver, but then they totally didn't come to Canada for about 15 years there. So there was an element of being forgotten, but totally understood as to why, right? How old were you at the time when you first started listening to them or first heard of them? I was 18. And and so what music, I'm sorry, what music did you start? Were you listening to before then? Because when you said that you meant you name check the tragically hip earlier, uh, I went to college in Buffalo. And to me, the biggest band in Canada that would kind of fit on a jam band bill was God Street Wine. And I think they're from wow. Buffalo. I don't think they're Canadian. I could be wrong. I'll check that. They're but- not Canadian. Well, I look at it this way. When I started to really have music seriously affect me was probably in grade eight. Do you guys say grade eight or the eighth grade? Eighth grade. Okay. Um, I was listening to the Pogues uh-huh. and, and the Dead Milkman and the Delicate Sound of Thunder was a huge, huge uh, play on a playlist constantly. I don't think that that music necessarily informs all of a sudden finding fish. But I think if I was to then include listening to like Electric Light Orchestra through my dad's records and a lot of his music, that kind of, in a way, informs where that may come from. Throw in a dose of the Muppet Show and maybe Street, <laughs> and you get like that irreverent kind of playful feel. The Tragical Hip kind of came into my mind in 1989. I must have been 15, 16. And at the time, I thought of them as a straight ahead rock and roll band. I didn't really think too much about Gord Downey, their lead singer, who passed away not too long ago from brain cancer, but he ended up becoming a quasi Canadian poet laureate, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And 
not only was the tragically hip kind of seen as Canada's band, but Gord Downey was kind of seen as the voice of a generation. It's not exactly anything resembling jam band music, and it and it doesn't have any kind of relationship to Fish in terms of its exploration of music. But what they do, they do incredibly well. So I where would you over- where would you suggest that someone who's unfamiliar with the tragically hip step in? What should we listen to first? Listen to fully completely. The album I think was released in '93. And listen to the song Locked in the Trunk of a Car. So, Luke, we uh, we heard a bit about you, your background as you know, growing up in Canada, how you first got into fish and what it's like to be a Canadian fan in a place where there's not many. But let's really focus in on fish now with the attendance bias lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. Luke, when was your first show? 10695 Vancouver at the Orpheum. What do you remember from it? Well, it's one of those things where I'd like to say I remember my first time better than I do. I'm so <laughs> grateful that that there are a lot better quality tapes now than when I first had them in 95. It gives the show a better taste in my mouth now that I can hear it better. I think for the longest time I had a really poor quality tape. So in reliving the experience, I didn't have that to fall back on. My memories of the show were that I was by myself for the first set. And I had a hard time believing that it was just these four guys doing this. I kept on waiting to see feet underneath the curtain behind them, you know, moving lever. (laughs) But it didn't seem that they were just four people dudes were capable of this and they didn't seem young and they didn't seem rock starry you know they didn't have like complicated shoes and too many zippers on their jackets they seemed like guys that were no just like me you know they had rolled out of bed put on clothes you know and decided that they were going to start a band but they knew what they were doing i just couldn't believe that they were doing what they were doing so I I traveled across British Columbia and Alberta, uh, basically living out of a tent, living some kind of Kerouacian style fantasy of mine. Every night I would listen to the band, sorry, the band, like the best of the band. Yes, yes. Hoist and Amy's Farm. And the guy and the girl I was traveling with, well, they ended up getting sick of it all. I mean, when you only have to, <laughs> But I have to say, when getting to Vancouver, seeing where the venue was, going to buy a ticket, being told that they were sold out, and thinking, oh, well, here we go again. But then it turned out that the guy who was working the uh, ticket booth had a ticket personally. He wasn't familiar with the band, so he sold it to me face value. Oh, wow. And I want to say it was like $26 Canadian. I was going to say $26 for a fish in 1995. That's a little pricey. You know, my first show was in the New Year's Eve, not New Year's Eve, but the New Year's run in 97. And that was $27.50. I was at that show. And see, that $27.50 for me was $54. Oh, wow. Right. So see, this is where being a Canadian fan and being somebody that was, you know, reticent about saying no to hopping in a car, always had to look at the bank book and say, Okay, I have 200 Canadians, so that means I can't go. 
because a hundred dollars isn't going to get you a ticket for two shows and food and accommodation. But your first show was only about two months before the one we're talking about today in Portland on the opposite end of the continent. What was your most recent show and what did you think of it? Uh, Toronto 2019. And what did you think? I kept on thinking when I was listening to the set, you know, it was ACDC bag and 555 to start off with. And I kept on thinking that 555 didn't seem out of place to me if that show was in 93 or 95. Hmm. I, I like the song. I know some people don't seem to get it onto it as much as I do, but I didn't seem like the show was that out of place. Maybe it's me thinking that I'm just happy to see a show. So anything that I'm hearing is going to be something that I enjoy. And I'm far past that stage where I'm going to critique everything that I hear. There was a time, you know, maybe where I would critique every missed change or every missed intro and think, this isn't the show. I'm going to go home disappointed. I don't think that way now. Right. I do think, though, that when I look back at the shows that I saw in 93 and 95, if you take those set lists in the plane and bring it back to 2022, I don't think anybody would come away disappointed. If you had a time machine and you could go back to witness any fish moment, either on stage or off, where or when would you go? I met probably the most important person in my life friendship wise and support wise after I was seeing fish on the regular. And I think I remember her being instantly interested in what I had to say. Her name's Megan. And when I think back on it, I probably would like to have taken her along to every moment that I saw the band, mostly because you spend so much time talking to somebody about something but never experiencing it with them. Yeah. When I think back about my life, that's the only thing that I think is missing is having her along for that part of the ride. I remember introducing my dad to it and playing hoist at a birthday party of mine. And, you know, he heard the song Julius and he liked it. And I think he said something about it, reminding him of the door. And I remember being a little bit embarrassed. (laughs) Thinking that, no, this band is nothing like The Doors. But I think he was trying to equate it with something that he knew I understood, that he understood at the time. And for a lot of people, that's important when you're trying to explain something to somebody. You're always trying to compare it to something, which is really unfair because how can you compare? You really can't compare the taste of an apple and an orange. Yeah, but it helps provide context. It helps express it. You know, when you talked about being able to express something or I maybe I just talked about it, express something to someone. You got to find some solid ground before you build on top of it. You know, I I think you need context somewhere. When you told me the story of your dad just stuck uh, comparing Julius to the doors, my head just went to love me two times, you know, with (laughs) that that starting little blues riff. That starts okay. off the song. And I hear that in Julius and I hear it in Love Me Two Times or a lot of songs that are on The Doors' first album that are very based in blues, like swing blues. And so I agree with you that Fish and The Doors don't really sound alike, but I could see how someone can 
fine glue somewhere between them. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because maybe it gives me a little chance to go back and listen to those Doors albums and figure out what it is exactly that he might have been thinking. What is your favorite post-show snack? I think at the time when you would get your ticket stub, I always held on to it. I always wanted to have that memento. But you would always find ticket stubs discarded outside of the ticket window. And they always used to have like that buy one, get one free at McDonald's or Wendy's (laughs) or Burger King. And like I said, we were always on a budget on tour. So to me, something quick and easy, something painless at the time, two or three nights at McDonald's, that's a little painful later on. (laughs) Yeah. Different story. What is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? I initially thought nudity, but then that became so commonplace after, you know, the Clifford Ball and the Great Went and the Lemon Wheel. I even did that Spencer Tunick photo at the Great Went. So I don't think that nudity was as weird as it would be for somebody that hadn't thought of everything happening at a fish show. But at the Great Went, it was the only time where I had brought cameras. And I think I had bought in three different disposable cameras purchased sorry not bought and started taking pictures as soon as we crossed the border and i think i remember taking photos of the walmart because it seemed to be dedicated to jeff gordon and i didn't know who he was (laughs) at the time so everywhere there's this jeff gordon this jeff gordon that he was selling cereal and oil and maxi pads and and lighters (laughs) you know he was everywhere so i was taking pictures of that and then I was taking pictures of Shakedown Street and taking pictures of people at the show and friends of mine. So it turned out that after having these rolls of film for three years and getting them developed, there's the word. Yep. Um, this stranger pops up in three photos in three different time frames. <laughs> one at the Walmart, one with a different friend of mine, and one in another different location altogether. And I started to think how weird it would be out of a population of 85,000. How could this one person show up in three separate photographs that wasn't a friend of mine? He was just an unintended visitor, but <laughs> he becomes this historical figure in my history because for some reason he decides to show up. And when you look at the pictures in one of them, he's like in the background smoking a bowl. And in another, he's like on Shakedown Street buying some kind of weird lava lamp bowl. (laughs) Very weird. When was this show played? So the Fall 95 tour is pretty legendary in fish history. They played 54 shows starting in late September and all the way to December. And the last interview I did for this podcast was for a show from October 95, which is very close to the beginning of this tour. And the one for today is from December, which is the very end of the tour. And despite similarities in the set list between the two shows, today's show, December 11th, sounds like a much more muscular, polished band. Even though they were on point from the beginning, they definitely developed. They were very, I don't know, they just sound stronger. That's the best way I could put it. Because this tour is almost like a roller coaster with no dips. They just keep (laughs) ascending all the way from the beginning through the end. I mean, they were playing shows night after night where each one 
you could make a case that it's the best show of tour, that everyone was almost better than the previous one. And I did a little bit of research looking at the official live release shows from just this tour. There's Halloween 95, New Year's Eve 95, Niagara Falls, which is December 7th, also December 14th, 95 in Binghamton, October 21st, 95 in Nebraska, November 14th, 95 in Orlando, Hershey on December 1st, 95, and November 30th in Dayton. I think I got to count, but I think that's seven different shows, not even from all of 1995. That's just this one tour. Right. And so that speaks to, you know, it's it's always been known by fans that all oh, fall 95 is one of the best fish tours ever, but it's rare that we get some sense of acknowledgement or favoritism. I don't know if that's the right word, but some sort of uh, conviction from the band themselves, or if not the four members of the band, at least fish Inc telling us this is special and it's being acknowledged. If you haven't been paying attention, you better start because, (laughs) you know, this is one of seven that we're going to introduce you to. Right. Right. And professionally, it was also the time when fish kind of reached the top of the mountain or at least what it was for them at the time. But at the time, kind of becoming the masters of their own domain, to borrow a phrase, that was, you know, that, but they could be in control. They accomplished the top on their own accord. You know, after this tour, they didn't really have to do their own tour scheduling. They could have Ticketmaster or whatever national uh, booking agency. They didn't have to worry about how many tickets they sold because the arenas were already booked. Uh, they were a little less independent and a little more industry, but they didn't change their ethos. It, I, it, it would change their standing in the music world because from here on out, it was arenas and top venues. The Grateful Dead were no longer around as of the fall of 95. So Fish was the top scene. You know, before the fall 95 tour, it was, all right, we're going to have to book this theater in Nebraska and promote it. And hopefully we'll sell enough tickets to make money. But I feel like starting in 1996, they didn't really have to worry so much about a do-it-yourself mentality when it came to the infrastructure of the tour. I'm jumping in 96 here because I, I don't remember being surprised at the venues that they listed for 96 and that a lot of the venues that I would have seen them in 94, potentially 94 and 95, weren't on that list, if that makes sense. However, when I look at 95, my first show was at the Orpheum Theater in Vancouver it's a theater. And I think the main capacity was 2,750. The next night or the two nights later was at the Spokane opera house. Again, maybe 3000 people. But aside from that, every other venue was broaching that 9,000 mark. And then Madison square garden to end out the year, of course, is, you know, what, 26,500, something like that. It just, in terms of the amount of people that, we're now going to see the band tickets became less available. I found, and I never stuck my finger out or had a piece of cardboard saying I need a miracle. Cause I, I didn't feel right doing that. I always thought that maybe if I went to a show without a ticket, that somebody would maybe talk to me and take pity on me, but I never did it. I started to notice not in Vancouver. I don't think any Americans came to Vancouver without tickets. 
In Portland, I noticed a lot of people outside without tickets. I don't know if that show was sold out, but I remember starting to hear that the band started to gain a little bit more popularity from people that were coming to see the band for the first time in 96. And I think that's what they had kind of established was that reputation in 95. If you heard that in show in somebody's dorm room of New Year's 95, you were going to get hooked and (laughs) 96 was going to be a hard ticket. And why do you have a tendency bias toward today's show, December 11th, 95 at the Cumberland County Civic Center? Aside from the music, which speaks for itself, there's always that sense of self that you have, or maybe that new sense of self. And for me in 1995, I had just come back from doing what I considered to be a journey of discovery across Canada. I had finally shed those demons of not being able to see my fish show, caught my first show. And I think I was in that headspace where, you know, you're 20 years old and the only worry you really have in the world is, do you have enough money to go to that next fish show? I miss that part of life. It's been a far, it's been far too long since I've had no worries, right? (laughs) Set one. So let's get into it. Set one opens with my friend, my friend, and listening to the recording on fish.in, which is a really great recording. There's a huge cheer right when it becomes clear to the crowd that they are playing my friend, my friend. You could put a pin in it. You could hear exactly when the crowd realizes what they're playing, and it's a huge reaction. This is outstanding placement for an opener, in my opinion. I thought it was an interesting opener for me, too, in that I I wasn't expected. And I think when you're reading the little Donick Schweiss or that little fish thing that used to come out before shows and you would see yep. the set list and you would kind of look at what they had opened up with the nights before. That was one night where I didn't see that sheet. So when they did start with my friend, my friend, I knew the song and unlike Vancouver, when I knew the songs, but I wasn't acquainted with them, I at least had known where my, my friend, my friend changed from that initial intro to going into that, darker kind of staccato style piano. supposed to happen but when it didn't happen it's like that build of of excitement to start off the show was already there when are they going to kick into it when are they going to kick into it (laughs) and and then they kick into it and 
I didn't realize at the time that everyone else was feeling that same way. You, you, I was all, all in my head at that moment. But then as soon as that gave way, I was no longer just in my own head. It was like a collective consciousness of, ah, oh, here we go. And it's not even like that is a very comforting part of the music. You wouldn't think that that would make you feel at home. It's kind of, it's an uneasy piano part, right? Yeah, but it's it's not comforting. I agree with you. I don't think anyone would would describe my friend, my friend as like a warm blanket of a song where you, you can feel <laughs> relaxed and fall back into it. But, and this is not literal, but it's almost like, um, like bonding by trauma, by shared trauma. Like everyone was on the edge of their seat. Everyone was tense for the last, it's probably only about 20 seconds, but it feels like it could stretch out forever. And you just want them to kick into the song so that when they finally do, like you just suggested, it's this shared wave of relief and you could hear it. It's a beautiful sound. And it's not, yeah, it's a distinct uh, upgrade from the beginning of the show, which is a, a glorious moment to begin with. It's almost like you have two openings to the show where they do this little intro and everyone goes, yeah. And then all of a sudden it changes and there's like, Oh, a second show. <laughs> and after my friend, my friend, they immediately transition right into ha 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 which is not even a segue. They just end one song and start the other. You know, to me, this is the precursor to Ass Handed. It was written by Fishman. It's a fun rock and roll riff with almost no lyrics. And it's it's very much of its time. It was there in 1995 and they rarely play it ever anymore. But then the song really, I'm sorry, the show really kicks into it with Stash early on. Because 1995 was the year for Stash. You could hear the excitement in the crowd immediately. And the jam starts with uh, dissonance, as it usually does. Fishman Tom, Fishman's Toms are all over it. I mean, there's just so much going on in this Stash. It's one of the best I've heard in a long time, even though it happened so many years ago. I, I kind of think of that, my friend, my friend, ha, ha, ha. And Stash is kind of a triumvirate. And I don't know if this is just me, and, and I hope it's not, but there seems to be like a, for me, a theme. So my friend, my friend, there's dark, there's dissonance, there's that tension release area. And without missing a beat, they break into ha, ha, ha. It is an unbelievable moment when I think about those three songs together. I had heard Stash at my first show, and it, I think it was my second song that I had heard and it did capture the room in a theater setting quite well. But when you change it into that arena style, the sound of Fishman's drums and the way that they filled the room was an incredibly different sensation. Yeah. My last note on this version of stash was Fishman has seven arms and four feet.
Trevor's stash is over. There's a lot of banter. Trey in particular is very chatty. Fishman is a little later, but Trey is very chatty during the show. And when I heard Trey talk, listening to the show in preparation of our conversation, it just brought back so many memories, like talk about a time machine. I was right there. And Trey says, we're happy to be here tonight. We love playing on this stage. And he makes a reference that Elvis was supposed to play here before he died. So he said, quote, we are basically trying to channel Elvis's energy tonight, which is just kind of goofy fun. But then they go into Prince Caspian. <laughs> I I still don't understand why they chose that. Yeah. And this is and he says this is for the king. We're going to do it for his son, Prince Caspian. My thought is Prince Caspian was a new song around that time. They played it all throughout the tour. And as opposed to today, it's a really quick one. It's like two minutes and 45 seconds. It's a short track. It's got the song, but nothing before or after, no jam, no, even really no solos, no guitar solo. So they played it a lot on this fall tour. Fishman's beat is a little bit different than what we know now, but yeah, it doesn't really connect to the, uh, to the banter earlier, but things kick into high gear next with Reba. What are your thoughts on this Reba? I had heard Reba in Vancouver, so I was already familiar with it. But I remember thinking that this seems really fast. It seemed to me that they had taken the record player and gone all the way up. And, you know, it was like at 72 RPMs. It it just seemed to get to the point quick, but precise. There didn't seem to be any mistakes. There didn't seem to be any kind of lag. There didn't seem to be any... Uh, microphone wailing. There was no feedback. It was perfect. I agree. And the first thing you said about the speed, that was my first impression of it, listening to it again now, that it's at 120 miles per hour right away. I wrote uh, at four minutes, it's inhuman speed and accuracy. And then when the jam starts, it's not the typical start soft and slowly build that I'm used to in Reba. That's usually what I expect. And I don't get sick of it. You just kind of know where it's going, but it's just straight up feel good music. And at the end, it does close with quite a lot of rock and roll bliss at the end. It still ends the way I would expect the Reba jam to end uh, without whistling. I don't know. It's a good straight up Reba for 1995. It's above average if they played it today but it's what you could expect at the time. I think when I hear a Reba now, if I was to hear it live, I want to hear like an 18 minute and 41 second Reba. These ones from 95 seem to be traveling within that 12 to 14 minute realm. And there's a lot going on in that realm. There isn't a lot of quiet space. I should rephrase that quiet space. There is a lot of quiet, but there isn't a lot of space, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's at twice the speed also. Exactly. I, I, I kind of made this note about there's a movement at the 540 mark and there's an accompanying piece that kind of travels into that seven minute and 42 section. And it's, that's when the band for me opens up into that joyous kind of bouncing Yeah, it's that exactly uh, that joyousness of being alive kind of feeling.
I threw out this show and I don't know why it is that it's coming up. Maybe it's the recording, but Paige really seemed to come through for me. He was coming through with such strong quietness. I'm trying to make that not be redundant, but <laughs> he's pounding on the keys, but it doesn't sound like he's making a lot of noise. Yeah, it's very delicate playing, even though it's not meek. Very true. That's a yeah. good way. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> well, I, you and I, I think, heard the same thing. We, Or at least we feel the same way about what we heard. And after Reba closes, there's more banter. I remember reading about this show before I ever got to hear it. And I think it was Dean Budnick's Fish Compendium. And he pointed out this show about how Fish wanted to record an all dog log album. And sometimes you don't know whether or not to take them seriously, because even the Baker's Dozen was the realization of a joke that they made once backstage. You know, the whole premise of it. So if they released an all dog log album next year, it would be really goofy and fun, but not shocking because Trey in this banter says that at the end of the tour, they're going to put together an album of 15 different versions of dog log because they play it during the sound check all the time. And they're going to play a few different versions for this crowd. So they want to play a version of dog log with everyone quiet. And then when he gives the sign, the signal, the audience has to boo them as hard as they can. And people are cheering, you know, the audience does their part, not everyone, but the audience really does make good. They really shower them with booze toward the middle of it. It's really fun. It is really fun. And I will be honest here for maybe around four or five years, I held out the secretest of hopes that I would see dog log being released. I, I would think about what versions they would turn out. And I think they only had maybe nine or 10 versions that they had played live at that time. And, Maybe now they only have maybe 17 or 23 of them. And it's still enough for a feature length album, as far as I'm concerned. But I, I started to lose hope when I thought, okay, this Clifford Ball show, this should be released on DVD. And then it wasn't released on DVD ever. But then all of a sudden it was released on DVD. And I thought, okay, well, there's that thing that I never thought would happen happening. So maybe it is going to happen. So I'm still holding out hope. You know, you are right. There is that delicate, delicate balance where if you will it, it might happen. But if you jinx it, it won't. And then after that first crazy dog log, the fake dog log, if I could put it that way, they go into Llama, which again, you want to talk about playing fast. You thought that Reba was fast. This one is scorching. Uh, there's a big guitar solo at three minutes. And I thought it was unusual in that Llama usually is about crazy fast, what we call machine gun tray guitar playing. But this one is more about experimenting with sounds and getting uh, all over his pedals than it is about exploding with notes. And I thought this was kind of an interesting guitar in quotes solo for Llama, although I did enjoy it. I would say when I was listening to it this morning, which seems like a weird tune to listen on a Sunday morning, <laughs> yeah. when they do that screech of when Trey's guitar and I'm, I'm assuming Paige's organs are kind of, I, I want to say they're intertwining like vines. There's almost like a vocal squeal that I hear too. And I don't know how long it lasts for because it just seems to disappear 
it doesn't sound out of place within those two instruments going at each other. And I, I just, I don't even think of it as a cacophony of noise. Some of the llamas that I've heard, even like a great went 97 llama has like a mechanized, almost robotic kind of jam to it. Whereas this one, I feel it has more of like an organic solo, but like you said, a solo really doesn't encompass it because it is more noise building upon noise, building upon noise. After Lama, Trey asks, do you want to do one more that he's not done letting go of the, of the dog log joke that it's not enough to tell a joke with fish that it's, you have to overtell it. You have to do overkill. And that's what <laughs> makes it funny in this sort of Andy Kaufman sort of way. And at this time, Trey wants everyone to do the most quote, obnoxious high pitched screaming. And then the band will fade out under the screaming. So they start this very chill, almost lawn boy style laid back version of dog log while the crowd screeches and then they just stop. So it's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough to do the joke. They have to overdo it. And at this point it's plausible that they will release a dog log album. <laughs> I think so. So they follow up. My favorite part though, is right after when Trey says, we'll play one that people always request, but we never play. And it had been a while since I listened to this show. So I was listening and not looking at the what was next. I was trying to think, all right, well, what was a rarity back in 95? And they play tube. So, of course, the stat nerd that I am, I looked up how often it was played back then. And to his credit, tube goes about 90 to 100 shows in between appearances. Although this time it was just 36 times. They played it at the beginning of the tour at um, in Texas. But before this 95 tour, before that, it, it would, took 98 shows uh, from the Game Hoist show. And then 119 shows before that in Iowa on August 12th, not August, April 12th, 93. So he had his finger on the heartbeat. He knew that the audience wanted to hear Tube. And it's a good version at that. I think when you listen to the recording too, just as he finishes saying, you know, we're going to play a song that we never play, but blah, blah, blah. You hear <laughs> from somebody really close. And maybe I'm just hearing that, but I meant to ask you about this, Brian. Yeah. So if your first show was in 97, are you familiar with tube before you hear it in 97? And are you familiar with it because of this show or are you familiar with it because of collecting something before that for you? I'm, I'm speaking about you here. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Um, I don't think I recognized it when it was played at my first show for a few reasons. I don't think that I got a lot of tapes where it, uh, where it appeared because a lot of the tapes that I bought were only or bought or traded for. I mean, that, that were soundboard and usually in the early nineties. And although they played it, then it was still a rarity back then. So I yeah, didn't okay. know it. It also wasn't on any albums still isn't. So that also, I didn't have it uh, on a, on regular rotation. So I was the sort of fan that when I got a tape that I liked or a set that I liked or an album that I liked, that kind of became my talisman. That became the one that I listened to over and over and over again until I felt I was ready to move on. 
And with Fish, it took a long time for me to be ready to move on from a show or an album or a tape that I really liked. And after Tube, they played McGrupp, which is has a very smooth opening. And I realized as I was listening that I don't think they played any Game Henge yet. So it's nice to get a little bit in there. Uh, I thought maybe the vocals and even some of the playing might be a little bit off uh, at the beginning, but it kind of doesn't matter because by the time they get into a, the piano solo where Paige really takes over, and I thought about what you said about Paige being very present and high in the mix, uh, even way back during Stash even, it's great to hear him overtly take center stage during this McGrupp. I think at the time too, being 20 years old and wanting to separate myself from music that was mainstream, the addition of uh, an, an amazing piano player made it seem like the music was a little high art for lack of a better term. So when Paige was given an opportunity to play his own kind of pieces in these songs, it made me feel smart it made me feel intelligent it made me feel like i was following something that was entirely different than just a screaming guitar or the cacophony of drums i love that too but there was something that that little sly intro of of mcgrupp and the way that it kind of quietly builds when you listen to the fish in recording there doesn't seem to be any crowd reaction when they begin I like to think that people are listening and and that's the way that I remember it is that all of a sudden there was this lull and people went up oh, a game hinge tune. Let's really listen to this. the crowd get quiet and kind of the reverence that they have for McGrupp of all game hand songs where ACDC bag is fairly common and always has been throughout their entire career. McGrupp, it's not one you see every day. You know, you can go to 50 shows and never hear McGrupp. It's not that every day that you hear it. And it's, and it's a really great version, but after McGrupp, there's two really solid closers. Your dad would be happy. They uh, played Julius next. And then Cavern to really close the set. I thought it was going to close with Julius. I feel out of breath after this set. (laughs) I think Cavern was the first time that I remember really laying into the funk and really hearing that bump of Mike's bass 
I think in earlier shows in my Vancouver show, his bass had more of a tinny sound to it. And I think even in some of the earlier recordings that I had, Mike hadn't been put up in the mix as high as I would have liked. So I, I didn't hear the bigness of what that could do. And, you know, I always think when those funk songs are coming out that Mike's thumb always grows a couple more inches because it's <laughs> there's a heavier feel to the room, you know? Set two. Set two opens with the curtain. And my first thought was, you know, you're in for something special when a set opens with the curtain. And I was right because the follow-up is David Bowie. And when you look at a set list or a tape, what have you, from 1995 that says David Bowie, you're in for a ride. I had a ton of notes for this one, but I'll defer to you. What was it like for you during this David Bowie? I think I'm going to be honest and say that that the transition between the curtain and David Bowie, it doesn't even go into the song, but it, it has that hi-hat. Yep. And then it, it has that potential to start off with a normal David Bowie right there, but they kick into this. It's, it's a basic woodblock kind of, you know, the woodblocks that Trey was using for free. He gets on those and then Fishman's doing a lot of different, movements and work within this there's really no framework for it I, I obviously they must have had some kind of idea what they were doing the closest thing i can think of is the 94 introduction to david bowie that digital delay loop but that's a different beautiful animal in of itself This one was almost a percussive uh, build out of nothing. And I one of the moments that signals to me every time I hear it, I think it's at about five minutes exactly. There's this imperceptible squeak, almost like a tennis shoe on a gym floor. And as soon as that tweak ends, the band kicks right into Bowie and it was my first Bowie, so of course I'm not in tune with where the song's going to go yet, aside from what I've heard on Junta. And it is an amazing ride. Sure, sure. And I had the same thoughts as you did about that intro, that I kind of missed the time where they could make a song 
of itself before they even play David Bowie proper. But the, the composed section, speaking of the song proper, is flawless. It's great. Even with some vocalizations, Trey sings along with his guitar. It won't be the last time he does that in this show. But to me, it just demonstrates the confidence that they had that they could take this very complex, almost quasi-rock classical piece, prog rock, and do it to such mastery that they could goof around with it as if it's second nature. It's it's a very apt way of putting it where something comes from seemingly nowhere to either finish, you know, or go into something altogether different. It's it's like when Reba stops and then all of a sudden Trey starts to speak in the first set. Those were the things that used to blow my mind is is how do they know when to stop? Like so suddenly <laughs> yeah. how do they know and when you're listening to the David Bowie, none of that comes into your mind anymore because you, you've forgotten that you're actually within a Bowie. When they close out the song, when they're closing it out, there's those moments that are familiar and it's comforting to know that, oh, right, we're still within Bowie. But that period of time where you're right, they're in that cosmic realm of, let's see, there's this part. Okay, we'll pick that up and drop it off. That's music's done with let's pick up this theme okay that theme doesn't really work but what i like from that theme that did work goes into this quite nicely and it is you're, you're right that ladder to um <laughs> the cosmic space is definitely in play This were this version is 3D Tetris, more like Jenga than Tetris. So after that, it's the Mango song, which is a relative rarity. It's always a fan favorite. I don't think I know anyone who doesn't like the Mango song, although eventually I'll find someone who doesn't. And there's more string scrapes, um, a great solo from Page. Nothing terribly outstanding except the fact that they are just playing the Mango song. And this might be the first time that someone on this podcast picked a show for the song taste that surrounds because people have picked shows between 95 and 97. And this song has a different title every time that they play it in that, in that era, there's fog that surrounds there's taste, there's taste that surrounds. 
I've gone over the evolution of it so many times in the fact check that I can't even remember when it became what we know it as today with taste. Uh, when we would get tapes, it would say the fog that surrounds. And I remember for the longest time, that was what I called it. And then, like you said, it was labeled tape surrounds. I was looking at my tape for this show and it is listed the fog that surrounds, but I can't speak to who was following as closely at the time as when the song changed from one incarnation to the next. I do think that there's some, I don't know if it's sloppiness or if it's we're witnessing the song evolving, but in a live context. I always felt like limb by limb and taste kind of held that same kind of territory. It's just that limb by limb seemed to be recognized a little bit earlier than what taste would become. I think a lot of it is has to do with the band's vocal structures and they were very experimental at this point with all four of them singing, including Fishman, who now he's developed a standard, if not great singing voice, he can certainly hold his own. But for a long while at this point, they had been together for about 10 years. His vocals were a joke. They were the comic relief, but now he's really giving it a shot to have his voice be a part of the song while playing a crazy, I could be wrong on this, but Afro-Cuban beat with limb independence. Now he's inserting a proper singing part. And that I think was the big change. I mean, songs that are as straightforward and simple as theme from the bottom has interconnecting lyrics, interconnecting vocal lines, and I think that's where a lot of the problems come. It's almost like a traffic jam without a, a cop or a stoplight in the center to tell people who to go when. And I think that's <laughs> kind of the, the problem with this version of taste fog that's around, whatever you want to call it at any given point. My first note is, boy, I'm glad Fishman worked on his vocals. But for the most part, this is the same song that we know today, just not everything is in its correct place. I kind of like looking back on this show and thinking that I, like I said, you were witnessing a song evolving while it was being played. And the next time that you heard the taste that surrounds or the fog that surrounds, it had an entirely different uh, formula where, where Fishman was uh, saying things before on top of Trey that didn't exist. So they took those pieces out, you know, like we were talking about earlier, what works and what doesn't work. And I think in that regard, being a part of something live in terms of a song fleshing itself out is is quite a nice uh, historical thing to think upon reflection. 
at the time that you're there, maybe it sounds sloppy or you're not hearing at all. And I'm wondering maybe if you were to see that now, you're thinking, oh, what's going on? Why does it sound so sloppy? But I mean, not everything's going to be perfect, right? Right. Especially with Fish, where they're happy to develop their songs on stage until it reached its logical conclusion where they played Fuego as Wingsuit, a whole album live to see what the response would be like from the audience and then went back into the studio to arrange it as needed. And after fog taste that surrounds, they play Son of a Mule, which I can go either way on. I always enjoy it while they're playing it, but I don't need to hear it at any given show. It's fun for sure. And what I liked about this one is that it was a true mule duel where it wasn't just Paige does his part and Trey does Trey's part. They really were interacting, and I thought they really each took their time for one to respond to the other, that it wasn't just kind of showing off. It was really good call and response in the middle of this weird bluegrass song that doesn't really make any sense, except when Fish plays it, of course. When it first was released on the Hoist album and I heard it, I, I, I loved it. It was initially one of my favorites from the album. And I chalked it up in that same realm as Poor Heart and My Sweet One. But it didn't do that in a live setting. I don't remember seeing one that didn't have something interesting about it. And this version itself, personally, it was my first mule. So, of course, I'm listening intently as it's going on. And I remember that whole interplay between what Paige and Trey were doing and at the time thinking, I don't know if this is so much like a duel where there, there's a winner and a loser. I think of it more as like a, um, a, a mirror exercise where they were trying to play the same thing or trying to complement it. At the same time, realizing as they're playing that there's so many infinite possibilities. And then all of a sudden you get Trey coming out with almost like that phenomena vocal scronk. And I almost expected Paige to like mirror that back because, you know, in a fish setting, you can expect anything to happen really sometimes. And as we get toward the end of the set, next up was Harry hood. And when you think about Reba stash, Harry hood, all in the same show in 1995, this is when a lot of these songs were making their bones as every time that they open with that, every time they play the opening of these songs from now on, it's going to get a huge cheer as they're building each reputation. And Harry Hood, this was back when, just like David Bowie, the song, the intro to the song could be a song in itself. And this doesn't quite get there, but it, it has that excitement to begin and what a knockout it is. You know, Bowie, McGraw, The Curtain, Reba, Stash, all in the same show. And this is a really good Harry Hood as well. It's hard to find a bad one at this point of their playing. If you collect songs, you know, like you always, and I know Fish fans, and I was one for a short period of time where they collect songs in a set list and they're always thinking, okay, well, that song didn't work. I didn't really like that, but at least I caught this and I caught that and I got my McGrupp and I got my Susie. And then it's almost like they don't want to hear it again. And I never really quite understood that because I always thought that's why we were going to see them on multiple nights is that if they did play Susie two nights in a row, you could still be guaranteed they'd be different. 
I mean, you would still have people upset and I'm not advocating that <laughs> at all. Um, but I think if you look at the set list of this show and you think, okay, it's got a mule, it's got a hood, it's got a Bowie, it's got a Reba. And you think, man, like there aren't many shows that do that anymore. You're lucky if you get one, two of those in a show. And all of these are not only solid, but they have something unique and distinct about them. And I think when you were at the show, and I think this is probably true of any show, you're too busy taking in the whole experience. And there are moments that you remember going, maybe laughing uncontrollably, or maybe even yelling a fuck yeah, or maybe even letting out a woo. I mean, I don't woo too much anymore, but I used to. <laughs> But I think I remember when I wooed, you know, when I listen to the show now, I'm like the 20 year old me, he would have wooed there. The 20 year old me giggled uncontrollably when this happened. And I think that's part of going back to why my attendance bias exists for this show is because I think I can travel back in time and remember exactly what I was thinking and doing when I, these songs were happening. So I, I remember when Harry was happening. I remember thinking, this is a song I've heard people talk about. This is a song that I know is important. And as soon as the song, maybe 30 seconds into the song, I'm already forgetting everything that I was told to, <laughs> you know, it's it, all that stuff that people told you to get ready for goes out the window and you're lost within, okay, this is Harry. Boom. It's gone. And you're in this different realm. And, and I would say that that jam within this Harry does reach certain areas where you're kind of mystically taken away. It doesn't quite reach those epic heights, but it does in such a nice tight package. same thought we were talking earlier about prototypical versions of songs you know the version of a song that gets fixed in your mind and every subsequent one is compared to it for me it's the harry hood from a live one as i'm sure it is for a lot of fans really who, yeah who got into fish at that around the same time in the mid 90s or late 90s before file sharing was really uh what it is today i know what harry hood is capable of and although this one, as you just suggested, doesn't quite reach that energy and peak, it has everything you could want from it. I agree with with that part of uh, of of your 
your look at it for sure. And after Harry Hood, they got some comic relief with Suspicious Minds. I guess now they're paying homage to Elvis, right? This was a pretty popular track on the uh, the fall tour. They didn't play it much before or after. But no, they didn't. Yeah, this was, I mean, they did occasionally, but not as they played it during the fall 95 tour. But, you know, you knew an Elvis song was coming at some point right away at the beginning of the show. It had to pop up somewhere. I had heard Suspicious Minds at my Vancouver show. So when they when they break into the song and I knew this was going to be Fishman's, you know, they break into Hi Who and it's Fishman's turn. I kind of knew that this was going to be a Fishman song. In my heart of hearts, I'm going, please don't be Suspicious Minds. <laughs> but I knew it had to be. But it, there's always that moment where maybe he'll get to the mic and all of a sudden it'll be something else. That doesn't happen to me anymore. I don't get disappointed by expectation anymore then even at my second show because i'd already heard it i thought uh i really wish i was collecting another song here it wasn't until maybe my third or fourth song that i threw that attitude out the window and just it it wasn't important to me that i had already heard this version because it wasn't that version that you were hearing again it was an entirely different interpretation right and to close the set they bring on Warren Haynes. Trey says, please give a warm hand for Warren Haynes. And they play funky bitch, which is probably the best song to have him guest on. It's a playground for the guitar. And you could hear how incredible his tone is immediately. Uh, he makes the whole band sound different in a way. I don't know if it's my ears or a trick, but Fishman is playing with a bit more muscle and there's just screeching guitar solos in the best possible way. I should say that for me, that particular moment where Warren steps on stage as has a mythical, it reaches mythical proportions for me. Yeah. And it, it'll sound like I'm telling a tale, but I didn't go out of the concert venue at all during the shows. 
I didn't leave my seat. I didn't want to miss a thing. But at that Portland show, I think I really had to use the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom. And I, the reason why is because I ended up getting lost all the time. All of those arenas seem to have the same layout. And then you get out there and you've been blissed out for an hour and a half listening to music. And then you get out into the hallway and you bump into people. And it's, it's, it's a show in of itself, you know, that, that, that period of time. And I don't know how I found my way back to where the Zamboni area is. And there was this dude walking with long hair and a beard. And I thought, hey, that looks like my buddy Grant. Now, I'm sure everybody can say that long haired bearded guy looks like a friend of theirs at a fish show. And he turned around and it wasn't my friend Grant, but I kind of recognized him, but I didn't know from where. At the time, I didn't listen to Government Mule or the Almonds like I do now, but there was something recognizable about it, right? Later on, ladies and gentlemen, Warren Haynes. And I'm like, oh my God, that's who that was. That was Warren Haynes. I, you know, I said, hey, Grant. And he turned around. So we had an interaction. And when Warren starts plugging in and you can hear it on the recording, you know, he plugs into the amp and you hear that little zzz. Yeah. It's like, oh, that is a hot sound, you know? Like, have you ever had that moment where there's a noise that comes out of you that you didn't expect and you don't even want to lay claim to because it is so out of character. So it was this high pitched squeal and I yelled funky bitch as loud and as high as I could. And then everybody in my section turned towards me and Trey looks and he nods and the band <laughs> kicked into it. I know that's not how it happened for Trey, but for me in my section, that's how it's remembered. And to close the whole show, they go off stage after Funky Bitch and then they come back on with While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is a classic. I don't like I said about Funky Bitch. I don't think they could have done it better. It's a playground for both Trey and Warren Haynes. And there are parts where they're really just connecting that that typical sound of All My Guitar Gently Weeps of the Eric Clapton solo on the album, the Beatles recording where the guitar is weeping, that kind of shrieking and uh, vibrato. I'm not sure if that's the right phrase, but at the end, both of them, both Trey and Warren Haynes are able to emulate it at the same time. And it's it's very emotional. I usually don't get very excited or have a reactions to guitar theatrics, but this one hit me for sure. I've been listening to that particular song with the the lights off and my eyes closed. And the emotion, you're right, as they are hitting that apex of that song, it is, it's, it's a very somber, haunting moment.
And I, I use that word haunting very rarely because I think in terms of what they create, it's the most beatly sound that I've heard from weeps to, to use the short form that they've done. Typically they've done it on their own terms and made it their own, but this one sounds even more beatly than when they did it on Halloween. I meant to ask you, Brian, and I, I'm sorry if I've been a bit disjointed here for you. You came and your first show was 1229.97. And your yes. second show was the following year? Yeah, it was December 28th, 98. The evolution between your first and second show as a fan, on your second show, were you familiar with where to dance, when to expect to stop? Were you were you were you prepared? For your second show in terms of what you were in for very much so yeah because i first got into fish in the summer of 1996 in that that was the first time i actually heard the band knowing that it was the band fish because i'd heard other songs but never made that connection but summer 96 so i had about five months before they came around to madison square garden so i found what i could i was only 14 years old so I had limited wow. resources to, you know, it was like babysitting money pretty much to get an album that I could find. I didn't know anything about tape trading or anything like that. So when they played that first show of mine, uh, December 29th, 97, I knew if they played, I'm making these numbers up, but if they played like 16 songs that night, I would say I knew about seven of them, maybe five. Wow. And then, yeah, so I had a year after that because I didn't have a driver's license. Um, I was still too young to travel interstate or obviously cross country on my own. So I just had to kind of find tapes and listen to what I could. The Internet, in terms of file sharing and downloads, was still fairly nascent at the time for fish. And so by the time I read a ton I read every book I possibly could find about fish at the time. There were maybe four and I memorized every single one of them. And <laughs> by the, so by the time they came back around in December, 98, they opened that show on the 28th with Axela and I was ready for it. I knew exactly every single song that they were playing and they encored with been caught stealing, which well, I knew before I ever heard fish. So sure. that year, that year between 97 and 98, December 97 to December 98 was kind of the expansion, the mad expansion of my expectations, my knowledge, and pretty much anything involving fish. Yeah. The reason why I asked that is because the reason why I chose this show is because my first and second shows were spread out. We're not spread out. They were so close to each other, but not in the same run or right after each other. So when I think of October 95 and December 95, there's a lot of similarities in what was going on in the music, but it's like you began to speak of at the beginning, even in December 95, they were far more polished and far more crisp. And it seemed like they were comfortable in their skin doing whatever they wanted to do. And by the time I saw them in 97, your show, your first show, that was like my 10th show. I knew every song that was played on your first show. When I saw them in Portland here, there were songs that I was totally unfamiliar with. The banter I was unfamiliar with. 
the thought that dog log turning into an app, like all of these things I was unfamiliar enough with that my second show feels more like a first show. And I don't know if that happens to a lot of people where their first show kind of goes under the radar because of maybe the group of people they were with or song selection. It wasn't that I didn't buy into the music. It was that I couldn't, I didn't quite know how to give into the moment like I did later on in my fandom. Well, Luke Hall, thanks so much for coming on Attendance Bias to discuss so much. I can't wait to share this episode with all of the listeners who might not be familiar with what it's like to grow up and get into fish in a place or a world where it's not as common on a national scale, let alone on a local scale, which I think a lot of people do have that experience. But I think when you talk about countrywide, it's a different ball game. But in this case, it was December 11th, 1995, your second show at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland. Luke, thank you again for taking the time. Thanks for sharing the groove, Brian. And that's it for today's episode with Luke Hall about December 11th, 1995 in Portland, Maine. I'm glad to say, and this has been happening a lot more recently, that Luke and I got not quite everything, but almost everything right for the most part. But still, there were a few things that need a bit of expansion. And yes, a bit of fact checking on today's attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. Luke talks about the snippets of information about fish that would trickle to him and his friends before the internet age. One example he gave is that this weird band would give out boxes of macaroni and cheese to the audience to shake along to the music. Fish has done this at least three times on record. September 27th, 1985 at Slade Hall at UVM, Halloween night 1989 at Goddard College, and May 27th, 1994 at the Warfield Theater in San Francisco. When Luke references the Train Anastasio Band playing in Fredericton, New Brunswick, that show was on September 15th, 2017 at the Harvest Jazz and Blues Festival. The Mike Gordon Band show referenced in that same segment was played on August 4th, 2006 at the Evolve Festival in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. Luke says that Fish took approximately a 15-year break in between gigs in Canada. Looking at Fish.net and the Czech in general, Fish played steady gigs in Canada from about 1992 to 2000, but after the July 6, 2000 show at the Molson Amphitheater in Toronto, the next time Fish played Canada was on July 22, 2013 at the same venue. For the record, the early 90s jam band God Street Wine is from New York City, not Canada or Buffalo. Luke's most recent show was in Toronto in 2019. That was on June 18, 2019 at the Budweiser stage in Toronto. It featured the debut of Ruby Waves, as well as teases all over the place, including plasma teases in the final hurrah and teases of Cross-Eyed and Painless, I'm a Man and Gotta Jabu during Golden Age. Luke's first show was at the Orpheum Theater in Vancouver, and he guessed that the capacity of the venue is 2,750. Luke must have really done his research, because according to the venue's website, the capacity is 2,780. Spot on, Luke. Very impressive. He then guesses that the Spokane Opera House has a capacity of about 3,000. Again, extremely accurate on Luke's part. The Spokane Opera House has a capacity of 2,700. 
The only inaccurate guess was when Luke said that Madison Square Garden maybe had a concert capacity of 26,500. He wasn't off by too much, but MSG's capacity for a concert is 20,789. When we got to the dog log part of the first set, Luke estimated that Fish has played maybe 17 or 23 versions of the song to date. Luke was on fire this episode because at the time of this recording, which was in early April of 2022, Fish had played 24 versions of Dog Log, including the two versions from today's show in 1995. And that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank my friend Luke Hall of New Brunswick, Canada for joining me today. I'd like to thank Fish.net for their help with the fact check and Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode. And thank you for listening, of course. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of it on your favorite podcast app. Follow Attendance Bias on social media. I'm mostly active on Instagram and Twitter. Reach out, say hello, and I'll send you a free sticker. Again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.